And we are live. Welcome to another episode of Maine Unstream. Today I'm joined by my good mate, as Aussie, out of uh, out of Finland of all places, Simon Michaud. Simon, welcome, mate. How are you going? Thanks, mate. Really appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, pleasure, mate. Thank yeah. you so much. Now, for everybody who uh, is watching and um, whether you're watching live or watching the replay, uh, just a little bit about Simon, because you may or may not be familiar with him. Simon uh, is an associate profession, professor working in Finland with the uh, Geological Survey of Finland in the, what's known as the KTR Circular Economy Solutions Unit. Now, that comes up as a mouthful for me even. Now, his current role at the um, at the GTK is to develop geometallurgy capability in battery minerals and develop GTK Mintech uh, pilot plant with digitization and machine learning upgrades and develop the circular economy. We might want to go into that circular economy thing, mate, at some yep, point because right. uh, sure. this, you know, this, that, that doesn't even do you justice. That's just a, a, a brief outline I know. There is, you have qualifications you know, up the wazoo and out the other end. Um, <laughs> That's a very Australian way of putting it, but love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, I, I know you've been involved in mining and blowing things up um, for all the right reasons, you know. Um, right reasons. <laughs> well, you know, um, whether they're right or wrong, let's, let's not go there for I guess. But you, you, uh, you've had a very, um, very impressive career in uh, a number of industries. So you want to, where would you like to go today? Like I mentioned circular economy, but maybe, maybe we want to go down the route of, because uh, there are a whole bunch of topics we can discuss. We want to go down the route of um, pretty much why the economy has been screwed from <coughs> We're talking about okay. that all right one of the current roles i'm working in was to actually understand the patterns the data patterns we're seeing in our industry at the moment you know uh where things why things are the way they are and where might they go uh so part of that was to actually understand uh it's it's work they've been doing for a long time but but I was to actually understand um, in the mining industry in particular, where does our material flows come from, like our ores, and where do they go? Like who uses them and what for? And I picked up on a pattern a long time ago. It would have been like uh, 10, 15 years ago that uh, we're an energy blind society. We depend upon energy. To, energy is the ability to do physical work. But because it's been so cheap and abundant for such a long time, we have forgotten. And our society has become something that, that it, it's actually money. Uh, and the stock market in particular is is the marker for reality. Anyway, so, so t t uh, 10, 15 years ago, I picked up on a pattern where the real economy, where the what we call the real economy, physical goods and services, someone does something for someone or we make something, has diverted from the fiat economy, which is their financial instruments, derivatives in particular. And it started to diverge. And I picked up on this in probably, what, 2005 first? And then when I actually sort of really looked into the data, that divergence actually happened all the way back in 1971 uh, when the uh, U.S., economy decoupled from the gold standard um, and the correlation for example in the production of oil and global GDP went from overlaying perfectly to diverging and now uh, oil production and what um, to the 
the physical the physical uh, economy is, is now um, many many times smaller than the full economy. We we have diverged right apart. Right. So so we've actually lost reality. Uh, now that happened decades ago, but in two thousand and eight, the system broke in what we call the global financial crisis. But that global financial crisis actually was a, a, a the outcome of a chain reaction that started in the oil industry back in January 2005 when the That's oil industry well okay the the oil um, can, can I share screen I can you can yeah all right well I might set something up while while, while I'm sort of talk, talking because I, I've cool. um, the uh, meetings and conferences uh, okay here we are it, it, this actually, I've, I've put together a number of presentations uh, for um, to describe this. This is when I'm actually briefing the British Embassy uh, group that actually came to visit us. All right, so I'm going to share my screen. Yep. Um, share screen. Okay. Applications. There we go. Let me know when you can see that. Go at the screen. Okay, what I might do is I might make that full screen. All right. Okay. So let me know when you when I can proceed. Yep. Okay. No, all right. So here's a correlation between say um, world GDP and oil consumption, and they correlate. But this is like the three average uh, change. Uh, this is a chart I put together in Chinese industrial output from 1991 to 2018. And the year-on-year uh, -year percent change of the monthly Brent oil spot price in black and the Chinese industrial output year-on-year -year percent change, right? Uh, and so you, there's three, three parts here. You've got prior to uh, – there's the global financial crisis there. That's that big dip there in, uh, say, 2008. Prior to that, there was a weak correlation where it did relate, but it, it didn't um, correlate that well. After 2008, they diverged. Uh, Chinese industrial output crashed. They had a big reset in 2015, but the oil price went off and did its own thing. From this point on, the Western economy was held together with the printing of money. So this chart is the production of oil. Now, this is, this is now more relevant than ever. Uh, the green is conventional, the yellow is Canadian tar sands, and the red is US fractide oil. Now, the red and the yellow require a high oil price to survive economically. The oil price has now crashed, right? And so a lot of the U.S. fracking um, is just not economically viable anymore, neither is the tar sands, which means the red and the yellow is going to struggle to produce at these prices, which means we're looking at about a 30% drop in the production of oil, and oil is the very heart of everything. Right, so so it's it, it's uh, we we've got a problem, and those businesses because of the quarantine have gone out of business because no one wants to be driving anymore while the yeah, quarantine is happening. That and I, I remember at the very beginning of this whole thing, the um, the Saudis, there was alleged you know fallout between the Saudis and the Russians or something like yeah. that, and you know whether that's true or not, I don't know. But then the Saudis <clears throat> dumped started dumping oil into the market. So yep. I, I think the Saudis are the green. They're trying, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, the, the conventional oil is everything, like uh, all over the world, but the Saudis represent maybe a third of the green. How's that? Uh, 
Now, that here's why this... Funny you should mention the Saudis. Watch this for a game of soldiers. Right. That's This is the same data, but now we're zooming in on January 2000 to July 2009. And you can see here the oil industry plateaued right at this point here. Now, in 2018, and we're in a different position now, um, only seven countries were still producing oil where they were growing. Everyone else had peaked and is declining. They are Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iraq, UAE, Kazakhstan, Canada, and the United States. Now, hmm. Canada and the United States, they're the only ones that are growing in an economy that's based on growth. So when we're also talking about this, this big macro change, we're talking about the transition from a growth-based economy to a contraction-based economy. So the very fundamental idea of capitalism with the idea that you must make a profit each year is now in trouble. And in fact, all human construct systems like communism or socialism, all of them require growth. So we're in genuine uncharted territory and all the ideas that are being floated around at the moment, very few of them are that useful. Anyway, so if you take the United States and Iraq out of the graph on the left, oil production totally peaked in 2016. So there's all these things about peak oil has been debunked. Not at all. Not at all. Right. So here's where we're discovering uh, oil. You can sort of see most of it was discovered in the 60s. That little red square is what was discovered the last um, 10 years or so, 2013 to 2019, where the record low discoveries is in 2017. So 81% of existing fields are in decline. And the top large producing fields, the youngest was discovered in 1976. So... Um, let's just quickly go through this. Uh, that data is the same data as before, but you've got a uh, cumulative distribution. You've got uh, discoveries is purple and green is production. You take one from the other and you get the orange. So a net addition to inventory peaked in 1981. Uh, conventional thinking too is, well, if, uh, if oil becomes a problem as we don't have enough, the price will go up and that'll make it just more justifiable to go out and find more oil, right? Thus bringing more reserves online. That was conventional thinking. This graph shows it doesn't work because uh, in the golden era when most of our industrialization was built in the 40s and 50s and 60s, oil was about $1 or $2 a barrel or if you adjust it for inflation, about $20 a barrel, right? Uh, so then it, at the peak here, it was... Uh, 109.71. This is adjusted to 2018 dollars, US dollars, right? And so then it it's come down to 49 in August 2000, but it was 164 down here. So down here, when we, we're we're producing much less, the price was much higher. Yet we're still discovering less, right? So that basic idea of the price will go up and that'll just bring us more oil. That's not working. So. so yeah. Sorry, sorry, I was just going to say. So, what about this? Um, what about this global movement to um, renewable energies and and uh, and, and you know, solar power and, and uh, short answer is not going to work. No. <laughs> uh, the, the, the problem with that, we can go through that if we have time later. The problem with that is the energy return and energy invested structure of all renewables is not enough. Uh, is not strong enough. Um, it's going to be, uh, this is not just expensive. This is just in terms of physical effort to get the things on board. Then there's the problem of we don't have enough minerals to make the batteries or the solar panels or the wind turbines. Mm. Uh, yeah. Right. There's a fundamental 
problem of there's just too many people. Yeah, my, my understanding was that it costs a lot. I think you, think you said as well before, just in different terms. So it costs more in energy to produce the electricity, the, the things like the solar panels, than you actually get out of the solar panels. And yeah. in, terms of, um, in terms of electric vehicles, uh, although they sound great, um, and this is not just from that Michael Moore film, there's, been, there's yeah. enough people who've done independent research on this, but um, in terms of electric vehicles, they are, I mean, the first thing, not zero emission. I mean, yeah, they're sold as zero emission. Yeah. They, they cost, they cost, like, they cost energy to, to, to create, to produce. That's the first thing. Um, they run on tires. That's another thing. But then they run yeah. on electricity, and that electricity has to be produced. Now, irrespective of all the wind farms and solar panels and the rest of it, my understanding yep. is that the greater majority of electricity is still fossil fuel based. That's and correct. On a, and although it can be supplemented by green, <laughs> green energy. On a, it, it takes a really, really good day in an, an area which has really good, you know, solar or wind or whatever to produce enough energy to make those electric cars better than yeah, fossil look, fuel. I I'm, have. I'm, I'm, everyone's hoping it's an economic solution. Like everyone's hoping that, that that the economics will step in and someone will make it work and it becomes a cheaper thing. That's what the oil industry thinks. That. Uh, electric cars will just take over and you know, that's the end of that. Uh, but things can improve and everything like that. And you can do it for a small number of people, but we really, we literally don't have the minerals to make it available for everyone. Uh, and we don't, uh, all of these energy sources are not producing enough e uh, energy per unit, if you will, to replace fossil fuels. Oil in particular turns out to be a very dense, uh, uh, a, a very dense um, fuel source. It's also very uh, flexible. Like you can keep it in a fuel tank. You can use it anytime you want. With something like nuclear power, uh, requires a lot of infrastructure and logistics to keep on on online. The graph on the right here is actually some of that data. The black is coal, the red is oil, and the um, grey is natural gas. Hydro is the blue along the top, and nuclear is the yellow. All the renewables like um, solar and wind were so small you couldn't see it on the graph. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I'd love electric cars and the whole renewable energy to work. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm yeah. not. I'm not pro oil. I'm not anti the rest of it. I really would yeah. love it to work. I just don't see it working right now. Well, my my take is it's the only game in town. It's the only solution we have for the moment. Right. Uh, we've still got a lot of oil left. It's not like we're running out. It's just so it's really an economic problem uh, uh, and everything. As electric vehicles come in, it's going to be not for everyone. Mm. You know, it, we're coming back to the point where only rich people own a horse. It's that sort of thing. Whereas people genuinely think the way we've been living for the last hundred years will continue indefinitely. Uh, and we're, we're, uh, you often see the environmental uh, movement say things like we're consuming a lot of the planet's sustainable resources, you know, and we're, we're wiping out species. Well, the other side of it is we've also consumed a lot of the mineral resources and they're finite. We're growing, but the rest of the planet isn't. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so, so there's 1980. Uh, so that is the point where the peak, where the, the net... Uh, addition to um, oil reserves happened. But from that point on, we just increased use. So, ah, this is a game. This is a good one for you. In 2018, 
there is the um, energy consumption uh, of, of oil. So the rest, this, this is everyone. Uh, Europe is blue, China is red, uh, China is black, sorry, US is red. And then you've got the BRICS economy sitting on top of that and the rest of the world is the green. Now, what would happen if the BRIC, the Brazil, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, that they became um, as de developed as an economy to consume oil at the same rate that the German economy does in the same time, as in oil consumption per capita, right? And then what would happen? So then you get this, where China and India, India in particular, actually, uh, really will blow out. We're, we're 2018 could be well be our peak, right? But if, if we were to bring the rest of the world into developed context like Europe, this is what happens. And so the rest of the world, if we were all, the entire planet was to go the same way as the German economy consumptions, it looks like that. Now, what we're talking about is um, an extra 117% capacity on top of what we are working at at the moment. So if Saudi Arabia and the Gawa elephant field produces 3.8 million barrels per day, then we need to discover and develop, get this, 31 new Gawa deposits just to service the rest of the economy. So, so our current system is inherently based on inequality, where the developed nations have to consume the resources because we, we, we want to, but there's not enough of those resources for the developing nations. And, and just for those yeah. who don't know, the Gawa deposits are the largest deposits in the world from my understanding. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The, uh, by, by far. It's the largest oil deposit that the world's ever seen. And uh, to go back to this graph back here, that's Gawa there. See, see that, uh, right? And this is what we've been discovering since then. And it's not that we're not trying. We're spending more money than ever before. So the interesting thing is, is Richard Heinberg, uh, an author I like, he, he, he wrote a book, so the party is over, right? That, 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 that sums up everything you need to know. So anyway, moving on. Um, this is the um, investment side of um, uh, oil. If uh, uh, this is just to basically show they're pumping a lot of money in uh, in terms of capex, but they're not actually getting oil production in return, so they're having to work harder for um, the same amount of I can uh, same amount of result. I can send you this presentation so you can sort of you know, uh, cut it apart and use it. Now back to Saudi Arabia. This is this is actually uh, where I wanted to go. Saudi Arabia was the swing producer of you know the rest of the world. That, that they were. Um, uh, they stabilized the oil price. They could increase production at will, so to speak. Right. <clears throat> what you're looking at here is a graph of the black line is Saudi oil production. They're about 10, 12% of the world's uh, oil supply. Uh, and the green, uh, the, the blue and the black is what's called the rig uh, count. This is the uh, number of oil rigs that are actually drilling for oil. And you see these two step-ups here. The first one, uh, global supply uh, plateaus in January 2005. The Saudis tried to lift production, but they couldn't. They actually couldn't. Um, and this second upfront one there was when the US 
and the the US fracking industry and the Saudis went head to head and I suppose the Russians were involved in that too this is a this is a uh, uh, you might call it a bar fight over who controls the oil industry as we're approaching peak oil right so that, that's what's happening behind it right so in October 2000 2004 um, right so there, there's our Oil production increased 21%, but the rig count had to increase 400%, right? So Saudi Arabia must be close to peak production. Uh, so we'll come back to this graph later. Uh, so this is actually the oil price, and the oil price got to a certain height in 2008, and then that was the actual signature for the start of the GFC. The oil price crashed. That's a spe speculative bubble. We'll get to that. And then it got to the point where, well, we need to bail you guys out. And so they started with quantitative easing. And it's been bouncing around. And what my, the purpose of this graph is to show that we're in a contracting window. Can you, can, so, you connect, can you connect some dots for some people, please, mate? Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. The, the, the oil, oil price crashing, yep. GFC, um, subprime loans, you know, yes. synthetic okay. uh, financial services products. How does that connect? Okay. Um, okay, what we might do is go jump to another slide that shows all that. Don't want to interrupt you. I'm just sort of thinking. Yeah, no, no, no. This, this, is, this is valid. All right. A lot of people uh, probably feel a bit short. Um, oil is uh, the ability to do work, and it is the, it's the heart of the current industrial system. Uh, it, is, it is the ability, it, it's our whole economic system runs on oil-based technology or petroleum-based technology, whether it's transport as a fuel or it's a plastic that we make. So this graph shows supply and demand. And there's our plateau in 2005. Now, here's oil price down the bottom. This is the Brent oil price. So uh, when, when things get difficult, supply and demand, the price goes up. Uh, the, uh, when it's too much, it crashes. Yes, you know, economic correction and all the rest of it. Right. So for a period of time, oil production plateaued. Right. Uh, we've got this little bump here, but uh, uh, and the oil su supply and oil demand for a period within that did separate. And in that time, we had an oil price spike that uh, was um, set conditions up for a speculative bubble. Uh, then the oil price, it got too much. Uh, this, our current society is based on cheap, abundant energy. When the price gets too high, the economy can't tolerate it. Consumers can't tolerate it. And then it broke. And a chain reaction went off. It's like a, a system under strain, and the weakest link will break first. Right? Uh, so the weakest link in 2008 happened to be the uh, subprime mortgage market in the United States. That was the first link to break under pressure and everything happened from there. But underneath all of it, it was actually a systemic problem. Right, so then we had a quantitative easing. Fracking oil uh, was invented in 1948, but in 2007, they had a technological innovation where they could do horizontal drilling with precision, which made fracking oil more productive. 
and they had some legislative uh, changes which allowed them to use it more widespread and fracking oil in the United States took off. Right, so a case can be made that the GFC or the Global Financial Crisis, also known as the party back in 2008, uh, was caused by a chain reaction with its genesis in the oil industry in 2005 in January. Quantitative easing resolved that, where it all just magically stopped. Fracking or tight oil was able to make up the shortfall of supply. And the United States is now the global industry swing producer with the majority of growth coming from tight oil. Uh, so um, now just to show what happened in 2005. Okay. Uh, this is the data from the World Bank on all of these commodities. This is what they track for the, to, to track the health of the industrial economy. Economy. You've got aluminium, iron ore, copper, lead, tin, nickel, zinc. You've got the precious metals, and you've got the energy products of oil, gas, and coal. So what I did here was I took the data back to 1960, and I indexed it to the month of December. 2001 and the number 100 right so the idea is to actually overlay these charts to show relative stability mm -hmm. uh, the 1971 that's when they decoupled the gold standard that's another important graph uh to to show the 1973 oil embargo that's the first time that they just just throw money ah thanks sweetheart my daughter just made me a coffee ha <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and so um, they. Uh, this is to show relative stability. And you, what's interesting, you've got this instability around the Iran-Iraq war, um, which caused in oil supply. But here's what happened in January 2005: oil produ uh, production plateaus. Uh, I haven't got a full systems analysis to show why exactly this is the case right so at the, at the moment i've got a data-based opinion rather than a systems map to show this but you you've got january 2005 oil production plateaus and you have a blowout in all of these metal prices now the metal price is the handover point between in, in the extraction of resources and the use of resources in manufacture and manufacture is driven by consumption right so metal price or oil price is a good proxy for the heartbeat of the industrial e economy. So here you've got the global financial crisis in that section there, and so you see quite a big dip. But the largest economic crash since 2000, 1929, actually in some cases it could be seen as larger, was not enough to resolve the underlying problems because the volatility is still there. So all of that stuff's still in play. So uh, a major correction did not resolve the problems. The change started something like 15 years in our past. Right, so back to this graph here. This is oil production peaking in January 2005. Saudi oil production at the same time, they tried to lift production. Actually, they started contracting. They still went down a bit, but yet they, they brought as many resources as they humanly could online, and they still went down. So the global swing producer was not able to increase supply, right? And and uh, then we got to this point here. So that 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 to me is is <laughs> you'll like this one. <laughs> um, 
could we have a real conversation about this? <laughs> um, uh, to look at the battery side of things, this is actually um, relevant. I did a uh, – if we were to go electric vehicle, like, how practical is this? Well, apart from, apart from what I understand, lithium costs a fortune to mine. We're, I may be mistaken, but I think that we're running out of lithium as a resource, at least the mm -hmm. current reserves, and they're just not that efficient. I believe that uh, Dyson, who's canned his one billion, almost one billion Australian dollar electric vehicle, has superior batteries, but I don't know what they're made out of, and I'm sure it costs. I'm sure it requires some resource, but tell us about this, mate, because this. Okay. This, uh, the, the entire world at the moment has put their hat on lithium-ion battery technology mm. uh, in some form. It's a combination of lithium, cobalt, and nickel uh, with copper and what have you. But yeah. there is no discussion at all of it, where we're going to get these minerals from. Uh, there are other battery technologies out there, but we've collectively put a hat on one solution and to the exclusion of all else. And the purpose of this work was to show how ridiculous that actually is. All right. So first of all, how big is the current transport fleet? And so what's interesting is I, I had to work really hard for this is it was really hard to try and find this information. Um, and I had to do a lot of it myself. It, the Europeans have worked out how many cars there are in Europe. The United States have got how many cars there are in the US, but no one's put it together and the rest of the world hasn't done anything at all. So I went through this process of how many cars are in each country. And you've got a, a rough estimate. We, we've got an average of around 2016. But 1.4 billion cars and, and trucks and vehicles. And then you've got the, the idea of different classes. Um, an electric vehicle that is a um, passenger car is going to have a different battery into something that's a truck. So this is what the United States does. They've got the best data in the world, as it turns out. You've got your vehicle class, number of vehicles, miles traveled, Right, and the only way they can do that, this will make you bake your noodle, is this their uh, surveillance grid. They've got a surveillance, uh, uh, they're surveilling each and every one of those vehicles to the point where they can work out how many, how many miles are driven by each class of vehicle, all summed together. Some, somehow that doesn't surprise me, only for the simple reason that it occurred to me years ago, now, with all this talk of electric vehicles, yep. all of the governments are going to be missing out on their petrol tax. Yep. So they're going to have to have a distance tax. Yep. You got it. How far do you drive? <laughs> they are nothing of not, not predictable. It's the same technology that Australia uses in facial recognition and number plate recognition technology to the point where you don't even need a rego sticker put on your car anymore. Right, so you know, um, a policeman will know if your vehicle is registered or not, and he doesn't need a sticker to see it. Anyway, so so we work out the number of kilometres that were driven, and we project that onto the world market. Uh, so the number, and and we come up with the total, total kilometres driven by class of the 2018 global fleet, all summed together, 2.8 by 10 to the 13 kilometres. Just say. It's, <laughs> It's a big number. We're a transport society. All right. And the number of vehicles are 1.4 billion. So that's the number of batteries we need. And this will give us an idea of uh, how long, how much power is required to charge those batteries. All right. 
So then I went through this process of, well, oil produ- we, we had this amount of oil production. It was made into these uh, products. It has that calorific value. And we have this efficiency of technology. And then that leads us to the number of kilometers driven. Okay. So these are the number of kilometers driven by the different classes. So if these were to be electric, well, how much kilowatt hours per kilometer capacity um, is now required? Uh, how, how much power are we talking about? And so the and that that is to actually run those electric motors. The required amount of direct electrical power to sum that all together is 4.07 by 10 to the 13 kilowatt hours. Right. Uh, so then you've got the what, energy. Yeah. Yeah. So what? What? <laughs> you may or may not have these numbers, but what's the average um, annual production of a of a nuclear power plant or a coal burning power plant? I do have that information. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I can I can I can dig that up. Uh, I, um, I have worked out the number of power stations needed uh, to do this, and the number is is upsetting. Let's just say that. But um, electric vehicles are more efficient than. Um, um, com- internal combustion, like they're seventy-three percent versus around twenty-five percent. So, um, but even so, the required electrical power to charge the global transport fleet to go to the same distance, estimated in twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. was five point five eight by ten to the thirteen kilowatt hours. Um, and then we've got that. that that's uh, the rail fleet that they sit there. So the power lost to the grid between the power plant and the port of application. This number needs revision. Uh, when I was in uni, I, a lecturer told me it was 70% power lost in the cables between the power plant and the uh, application point. But when I actually looked up in references, I found 24% when you add all the things together. So it has to be adjusted for that. So at the moment, now these numbers have to be checked. We're looking at, to do this, we need an extra on top of what's there now, 6.96 by 10 to the 13 kilowatt hours. And just for someone, anyone who's not understanding that that part of it, it's when when they generate electricity in the power plant, uh, between it going from the power plant and arriving at your home so you can go and toast your, your crumpets of a morning, there's a percentage of energy lost. Did I put that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So now let's look at, right, th- that's the amount of power. We need. Um, uh, no, we'll get to the number of power stations in a minute. But <clears throat> so I went to. Well, let's look at the different vehicles. Battery peak capacity is fifty-three uh, kilowatt hours. That's the capacity. Uh, so that tells us how big the battery is, and that's the efficiency of it. Like for every hundred kilometers, it will go to it. So you put those systems together, and this is the summary. This is actually a 200-page report, which is actually in draft at the moment. But the extra power grid capacity to charge batteries. For the electric vehicle revolution has to be something like this. This is our current production in 2018 was 26 terawatt hours. This is what happened in 2018. That red part is to phase out oil and just oil and charge the extra um, electric vehicles. So our existing power grid has got to more than double. Go from you know, this is an extra 69 terawatt hours on top of the existing 26 terawatt hours. If we're going to phase out coal, which is black, black and um, gas, which is green, then 
the, 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 the green and the black has to go into the right-hand column, and then what's left has to expand out to make that a happen. But it looks like then that looks to me but like about uh, if, if that were to happen, it'd probably be what uh, three, four, four, five times, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Uh, three hundred and sixty-seven uh, percent increase. Uh, what uh, what this I did I did some maths about the um, capacity of of different power plants and everything. We're, we're looking at if we have the same spread of renewable power plants to expand into that capacity. Uh, we're looking at 302,000 extra power plants to be built worldwide. How many? Sorry? 300, 302,000 extra 302, power plants. 302,000 power plants. That's what the numbers say. Um, I'm trying to get audited at the moment, so but it's, it's going to upset a few people. And an extra 2,100 nuclear power plants in that, in that combination. Now, of course, you've got problems of not uh, solar power can't go just anywhere. Wind power can't go just anywhere, and neither can hydro. So the number of sites available to do this is interesting. Nuclear has its own problems. That's a, that's its own can of worms. Ah, there we go. And so, to completely phase out fossil fuels, you uh, you've got that capacity. Okay. Okay. So with three, over three hundred thousand new power plants, and of course, as you say, wind. Um, water, do you want the exact numbers? Solar. Yeah, that'd be great. Because I was just right. thinking, you know. I, I, I read something, I can't remember what it was. It was one of these articles, whether it was a Gates article or, a Rock, or whatever it was. It was an article about getting um, that the people shouldn't be living outside of the major cities, that suburbia really wasn't a, uh, a system that would be working in the future. And that when you, when you consider that you need this many power plants and you need space for solar and God knows what else, that tends to make a lot of sense because where are you going to put this stuff? Right? I mean, okay, well, who's going to pay for it? They, they can't even maintain their existing no. systems. It's, it's just All not... Right. I think a blind man can see that none of this is going to work. All right, okay. Um, I'm going to share. I got... Uh, I'm, uh, this report's been in draft. I, I was actually promoted before I could finish, so I've got to come back and finish this. Uh, so, hang on. So what I will now do is stop sharing and then share again. Share again. Application. Really Thanks for sharing this with us, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. I got, I got to get out there. Right. So this is the first chapter. This is chapter fifteen. Uh, we're, we're, if we're going to phase out fossil fuels, we, I went through this process where I put some numbers to each one of these wings to work out um, sixty-nine terawatts have got to, to charge electric vehicles, and for everything else like uh, heating and and what have you. If you're going to phase out gas as well, we need an extra eighty-nine. Uh, 0.5, uh, 89,502 terawatts uh, to phase out fossil fuels in addition to what we're doing at the moment. We can get it from nuclear, wind, solar, solar PV, solar thermal, hydroelectric, tidal, geothermal, and bio waste. All right. So there's our graph. There's a portion. Bio waste, right? Bio waste. Isn't that just trees? Yep. That, uh, yeah. th this, these are the options on the table at the moment. Um, each I mean, one of those. Each one of those things have, have their problems. Um, mm. All right. So uh, then I did the calculations. Where's this one? This is for Europe. This, this is what Europe will have to do to uh, um, uh, region by region. This is what the United States will have to do. That's and the, the, red the, the red is the extra capacity they have to yeah, add. Yeah. yeah. 
this, this is the extra capacity, but but uh, um, this is what we're uh, extra capacity we, we require, hmm. right? So here we've got uh, green as gas, black as coal, gray as nuclear. Um, renewables are the yellow. Hydroelectric is huge enough to have its own little uh, 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 tab. So so this is what the US has to do, and this is what China does. So there's, there's four wings. There's global, then I go Europe, United States, and then China. Because the Chinese control most of it. This is what they've got to do. This is what they do now, and that's what they've got to add somehow. All right. Right. So stop share, start share. Okay, so now we're going to get nasty. We're going to estimate the number of power stations we need. All right, so this is global power generation installed by capacity type. So worked out, um, you know, the different power stations from coal, gas, nuclear, hydro, what have you. What's the installed capacity at the moment? Uh, and what is the average capacity um, and, and what have you? And existing global proportions of global electric power generation by source. So coal, gas, then you've got nuclear. Nuclear is sort of seen as a solution. It's not. It's got its own problems. But it's the only thing that can actually deliver the concentrated power we need to keep our industry going. Right. So the required additional electric power for um, 69,000 terawatts or 6.96 by 10 to the 13 kilowatts or let's just say a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. So if we were to just go, say, entirely phaser uh, let, let, let's say we're going to go entirely solar this is to show that that this be fun everything gets wiped out and everything becomes solar and only solar right that's what we will need or 126,000 120.16 times the total existing solar base so basically in terms of service area we're looking at like Half the Earth, or what? Mm -hmm. I haven't done that calculation, but it is something something huge. Uh, so then we get down to um, the expanded capacity. Expanded required capacity to phase out fossil fuels uh, has to be that. If we're going to go the same proportions, we've got these proportions of renewables. If we're going to knock out fossil fuels, what else do we do? This is what we do at the moment. If we were to expand these proportions into the needed power grid, how much extra will we need? And so that's how much extra will have to come from each sector. And then we're going to work out, well, the average power station, a size and scope of non-fossil fuel power generation. And so we, we, and so we get down to the numbers. And so the required new installed capacity to phase out fossil fuels of, in terms of kilowatts, required expansions, and then we get down to the numbers. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> the number of non-new, as in needs to be built, finance built and, and commissioned, non-fossil fuel power generation required the expansion phase out of petroleum products. This is global. I've done this uh, for individual regions as well. But globally, this is just for fossil uh, uh, for petroleum. But if you want to do fossil fuels in general, it's this number here. We need 2,115 uh, nuclear power stations, 31,707 hydroelectric plants, 
160,886 wind turbine uh, uh, array farms. And an or, array farm is multiple turbines. Yeah, mul yeah, yeah multiple right. turbines. Uh, I've taken the average. You've got you've got um, wind farms tend to come like an array, and the, and there's there's a number of capacities. So I've taken that average capacity. Right. So, um, and that's just an existing proportion. So all of that has to happen together. So everything on all fronts, all at the same time, has to be expanded. And so, uh, yeah, th there's your actual numbers there. That's crazy. Now, it gets funnier. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> this is the thing. No one wants to know this stuff. Uh, they well, they would really... Sorry, they, they would really prefer this just... Please leave us alone. I mean, the, the, Al Gore went around chanting about the inconvenient truth. Um, you know, no one knew at the time that the, that he had uh, shares in companies that were going to go and benefit from the whole movement he started. But the inconvenient truth is this. Yeah, I, do, I, I call this the known black swan. All right, so back to this data. Can you see the screen? The global yep. battery mineral reserves, yeah? Yep. Yep, okay. So now I've actually worked out, well, this is the number of batteries we need. Okay, so the left-hand column here is lithium, nickel, and cobalt. Oh, we'll go back a bit. Uh, we'll work on... Okay, I've worked out uh, um, the chemistry needed to make batteries per kilowatt. Yeah, we go through all that. Yep, okay. And uh, so we've got the number of kilowatts, the number of batteries. We go through for each, each uh, vehicle class for that. Um... And we go through that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Huh, there you go. There's your number. <laughs> Our renewable energy system has to increase by 1,105%. <laughs> We've got to go from 8.9 terawatt hours to 89.5 terawatt hours. Yeah, so let's just say that's possible. Uh, now yeah. we're going to make some batteries. Right. So, based on battery chemistry of NMC811, this is in the report, uh, this gives the proportions of minerals and metals. To do all that, uh, to make the number of batteries needed, all summed together, in terms of thousands of tons, the green is lithium, the orange is nickel, and the blue is cobalt, and there are global reserves. <laughs> now... Uh, that's for everything. And that's just to replace the existing system. Our production for all of these, that column was so small, I couldn't fit it on the same graph. And, so it, and how long would the batteries last? I mean, these batteries that, don't last forever. They need to be replenished after, what, 10 years yeah. or less. It depends on the product, but it's something like that. What, what this chart is to show is the hope that the electric vehicles will be the support, so underlying support for our industrial society and civilization for the next hundred years is not going to work. Not right. with the current technology, that's for sure. Uh, no, no, no. It's, it's, we, don't, we don't have the resources and uh, we don't have the, uh, the extra capacity is much larger. We've run out of time as in if, if we really did set out to build 300,000 power stations, we probably could, but we're not going to do it in two or three years or, for, or 10 years or whatever it is. So, Anyway, so at the moment, 94% um, of global reserves of lithium would be required just to replace the existing fleet, never mind what other applications we use lithium for. 
Now, nickel, we do have enough nickel, but 86.8% of it would be taken up by the ICE fleet. Incidentally, nickel is used in the use of manufacturing of ammunition. So we've got to uh, stop our pastimes in warfare if we're going to do this. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and a global reserves of cobalt. And at the moment, you can't really make a battery, lithium-ion battery without cobalt. Um, we've, we've got 50, 56% of what's required. That's reserves. Now, as the price goes up, you could then say, oh, that brings more resources online. And that is true. Uh, but that that's again we're back into the economic this is to show that it's just it's it's not really viable economically if you were to bring more resources online the reason they're resources they're not economically viable at the moment and our economics is sliding backwards not getting better and each of those resources are lower in quality and harder to work and harder to extract um, and so energy, and they and it requires energy to extract them. So you, you've got a a compounding feedback loop. So batteries will be made out of something else. All right. So this is what they think they're going to do in Europe. They've got all these battery gigafactories. Um, and so this they think they're going to make three hundred and fifty gigafactories in Europe. Right. <laughs> um, and so where will they get the minerals to feed these and this is also a global industry. Like each one of these groups, like Europe or the United States, they, they see things in isolation, uh, right? But actually, they're in competition with everyone else, and China controls most things. So, um, oh, we'll go to China. Well, right. wrong again, but, you know, how's yeah, so we'll, okay, we'll get we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so things will progress to a certain point where mineral supply will be a problem, and planned gigafactories will not be built. Right, so we're going to have to shift on to something else. Okay, so we're back to that. Okay, yep, you've seen that. You've seen that. Uh, what it all means, oil as an industrial energy source is probably about to become unreliable. The after oil plan is needed now. The required extra capacity in electrical power grid to charge the needed batteries just to replace the existing fleet is much larger than current thinking allows for. The current solution of lithium iron Lithium-ion battery technology is not viable, and the current global reserves of lithium, nickel, and cobalt are not enough. And we don't have enough time to go and get more. When I presented this data to exploration geologists, they, they just said, oh, we'll just go and get more. <laughs> yeah. Well, the store. yeah, but they, of all people, need to understand that, that or should understand that how difficult that is. Mm. Uh, so be required to find a new technology that's supported by different raw materials. That last point uh, 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 that new technology i think i call it the new electric the current renewables just aren't going to work and so in a needs must kind of way we're going to find a disruptive technology that's going to come out of left field um and when i was briefing the ministry about this they said well what do you think and i said try not to be too frightened by this but i think when we're put into a situation where we've got to look at everything fundamentally differently something will come. And what I was just saying is if we get into the space industry where we ha start having a civilian workforce up in orbit, to do that, we've got to, you know, to have them get up there and actually sort of operate up there and, and, and everything. To do that, everything that we do will have to be looked at differently. And in that environment, that that's the kind of stress 
and the kind of difference in paradigm that, that has the capacity to give us a new idea at a time when we desperately need it, yeah. right? The existing plan is not going to work. Um, so the window between action is possible and action is irrelevant is smaller than it needs to be. Right. So now you were interested in China, yeah? Yeah. I mean, All right. there's, a, there's a lot of stuff happening with China right now and people be like, yeah, 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 it's an easy target. How do you, how do you come up with that? We actually have a few, we have a few minutes left and... Um, I have uh, something to show you. Yeah. Uh, um, let me just navigate to this. Um, part of the mineral intelligence thing. Uh, where are we? Yep. So just phase out. Just give me a sec. To... Mm -hmm. Okay, we're here. All right. So stop, and we will now share screen, application window. This is actually... Um, all right. Let me know when you can see it. Yep. Got it. Yep. All right. This was the mm -hmm. idea that mining is going to return to Europe. Just, just a heads um, up. We have three minutes, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to into go through all that. All right. This is China. China dominates current global production. Now, this is the uh, what's called the critical resource material list that European industries are dependent upon. When China is the primary producer, I've got them in red. When the primary producer is someone else, I've got them in blue. The secondary producer is gray, and the rest of the world is green. Right. So this is the CRM, the control critical minerals resource list that actually has them. Uh, the industry worried at the moment. As you can see, China controls most of it. This is in mining. Wow. Right. Metals tracked by the World Bank. This is in mining. Um, Again, China controls most of that. They control it because they dig it up out of the ground or because they import like all of the iron ore and coal and liquefied natural gas out of Australia? This is actually direct China. This is production. Right. According okay. to the USGS. What you're referring to there is another layer again, so that's even worse. Yeah. Right, so that's actually the metal production. Uh, now we're going to go to industrial minerals, like here, um, you know, silicon carbide abrasives and all that. And again, this is a this is the raw material side of things. Now wow. we're getting to consumption. Who's buying this stuff? And this is the manufacturing side of things. China is red. So then you've got you know coal, gas, oil, silver, gold, zinc. So China, United States, United States is green, Europe is blue, etc., etc., etc. So China is controlling both ends of the raw material uh, uh, equation. Um, Anyway, so that's what I wanted to show you there. Uh, there's there's lots of stuff I could show you, mate. Uh, so, oh, this is this is worth worth sharing. All right, quantitative easing. <laughs> <laughs> right, I put some numbers here. What I've done is I've taken all U.S. civilian actions, and I've uh, geared them to U.S. dollars in 2018 rates. Right, so the purchase of the Louisiana um, state. Uh, 15 million in 1803 or 212 in 2018. The New Deal, the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, the Race to the Moon was 145 billion, and the SNL crisis. They're all civilian actions, and that whole thing fits into the little square in the top left hand corner of the bottom graph. The red is the wars. This is the money we've spent on wars the first Gulf War, the Korean War, Vietnam War, Afghan, and Iraq. Okay. 
<laughs> wow. Oh, this is QE1, 2, and 3. Oh, my now, God. Right. Now, QE1, 2, and 3, that, that amounts to about 3.7 trillion. Now, since then, they've been putting in a trillion a day. Yeah. Right? A, tr a trillion a day. And so, so what they've done since we're on the road to Zimbabwe. So here is where I actually took the um, oil production and GDP and index at 1965 equals 100. They overlay beautifully in the beginning. US dollar just couples from the gold standard. And that's what we look like now. So in the beginning, oil uh, uh, oil production and GDP overlaid beautifully. And now there's a difference. So, so when this crashes, it's got to crash back to where the oil industry is. And that oil industry is in the process of crashing. So... Anyway, let's would, call it uh, there. Would you, would, you would you be happy to come back on and let's have a chat about that whole quantitative easing thing at some point? Sure, no problem. Mate, because I no. think that's something that most people really don't understand. I, I, know, that, I know that most people don't understand, quite frankly. Uh, and it's, it's some scary shit that, you know. What's interesting is how often I have to update that graph now. Because yeah. I only did that a few months ago, and it's already, you know, uh, they, they did $6 trillion, uh, in the last eight weeks of 2019. Six trillion, whereas QE one, two, and three together was three point seven, and now they're doing a trillion a day. So if people don't, know, if you don't understand what that is, people um, tune in again. I'm going to ask Simon to come back, and we're going to go through. I'm going to do a, a, a session on quantitative easing and, and you know, financial or fiscal policy and things like that, just so you can understand what's happening and how's going on. Mate, it's this has been probably the most informative session i've had for a long time so thank you very much for sharing all that no problem i've got a report that's public domain on oil that i wrote i we can i can give you that link and you can put it in the description and then people oh, can actually look at the report itself if you, if you will mate, that'd be fantastic thank you very yeah. much and thank you very much for sharing everything you have done today um you 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 know there, there are very few people who can talk so authoritatively about this stuff and i'm sure there was some stuff in there that a lot of people weren't quite following so i encourage everyone to go over this and review it and review it again because it's so important to what is currently happening right now and where we're about to go um and if you think everything is just really uh you know um what's the word honky dory is an old saying um it ain't so <laughs> was it strap yourself in dorothy you're not in kansas anymore that's that's the one <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, Simon, mate, that, uh, it's the beginning of your day, end of our day over here. Uh, yep. Thanks again very much for coming on board and going on the mic and look forward to having you back sometime soon when you when you can make some time available, mate. Sure. No problem. I have a lot yeah. of material ready to go. Look forward to sharing that. Everyone, thanks very much for watching. And if you have any comments, leave it in the comments wherever you're seeing this on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, IGTV or LinkedIn. And uh, we'll get those things answered and uh, we'll probably come back and do a live Q&A sometime with Simon as well. Okay. Everyone, mm. thanks so much. Have a good one. You take care, mate. Merci. Au revoir. Bye. <laughs>